So let me remind, uh, let me remind everybody what we're kind of doing here. Uh, I've got quite the challenge in front of me because uh, this is uh, both a Sunday morning, or sorry, it's been a long week. This is Sunday evening. Uh, this is a Sunday evening worship service, but also serving as the last uh, the last talk in our conference, if you've been a part of the conference. And so uh, I got some people who have been uh, with us all week, and uh, I'm hoping that this message will bring much needed um, clarity to all that. I hope, I'm hoping it'll be a good summation of all that we have been swimming in all week, which has been a lot, admittedly so. Um, but then I've got a group who um, weren't able to be with us during the conference and are just kind of coming in. And, um, and I got to be mindful of that with you, of, 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 of you're not really set up for this in a lot of ways. And this might feel um, out of nowhere, so to speak. And then I, the, my other heart is for those of you who might be new to Christianity or those of you who may not even consider yourself a Christian. Um, and in the concepts that I'm going to talk about tonight, uh, I think might be a whole new way of you ever hearing about what it means to be a Christian and and God and what he's doing in the world and things like that. Um, and um, even if you've been a Christian for a long time and maybe, maybe you're just newer to our tradition, um, this what I'm going to be talking about tonight might might seem like, whoa, I've never heard. I've never heard it talked about like that. So um, I'm just going to, I'm just telling you that up front because I, I think instead of like just trying to make sure everybody's with me, I'm just going to talk and if I lose you, I lose you. And uh, you can go back and listen to it again um, instead of trying to get everybody to follow me. I, I will say this though, listen, listen, um, and I, I, I'm not going to be too confusing or anything like that. We, we the, uh, uh, the good thing about bringing some, for those of you who are at the conference, the good thing about uh, bringing somebody like Dr. Um, in is it is, uh, I think you'll appreciate my simplicity, and uh, and um, and you'll appreciate my short sermons very much. You'll like me a lot. Um, but he's brilliant, and he's got all these high concepts. That I'm going to do my my best to root us into the storyline of Scripture and show you how this all flows together from Scripture. Um, and if you are new to Christianity, or, or if, if uh, you're new to this tradition of Christianity, I would like for you to maybe just consider, is, if, if Jesus and, and God and the Scriptures are saying this, well, isn't it, isn't it quite the glorious thing? Um, and we're not just inviting you into having your sins forgiven. We are. We're not just inviting you to getting saved and going to heaven and all this stuff. Um, we're actually inviting you to join with us in changing the world, um, fixing the cosmos. It's pretty grand, pretty glorious destiny. So uh, let me read. I got three passages of scripture here from different places, and, and that'll become clear why. The first is from Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Uh, this is the beginning of the story, obviously. Uh, what is commonly called the cultural mandate. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let, him, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, um, this next passage here is, is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the most famous passage on the resurrection in all of Scripture. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Okay, uh, this next one is from the end of the story, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The word of the Lord. God, we are thankful for your word, and we humbly submit ourselves to it now with teachable spirits and hearts. We bow before your counsel, your authority, and ask you to speak. Lord, implant eternal high truths into our minds and our hearts so that they would um, have an impact on our lives. Um, Lord, I pray specifically uh, for an extra measure of stamina and uh, just for everything from my voice to my mental uh, clarity and everything to just be sustained here. And uh, I pray that uh, I would pour myself out and um, worship over your text for the good of your people and for Christ's glory, and I pray they would receive. I pray all my friends here would uh, focus in and receive your word and your calling um, that you have for them. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Surely you have noticed um, the explosion of these uh, home renovation shows that our culture has become obsessed with. Uh, to simple drill, a young couple purchases a home, helplessly outdated and run down, uh, but the HGTV renovation fairies sweep into town, and uh, within 30 minutes or 60 minutes, depending on the show, the house is transformed into a dream home. And, um, and, and paramount to these shows, of course, are these, these before and after pictures that every one of these shows ends with, which are so satisfying. Uh, 
<laughs> I, I get way too much pleasure out of seeing a kitchen so ugly that the 60s wouldn't take it back, uh, transformed into this room where I'm just like in sin of coveting. Like, I must have that. Um, and, and, and it's that, it, that's the appeal of the show. There's, there's something satisfying to renovation. Um, nobody's going to watch the show, you know, new construction on HDTV. Let's, let's watch them put up another cookie cutter in the suburbs. There's something we want about old, ruined, transformed, and restored, where in the end, the home feels both old and new. Uh, it's, it's, it's this coming together of the historical details, um, preserved and even celebrated as the centerpiece, integrated with kind of these new features uh, that we all love to enjoy that were never, the, the original builders of the home could never conceive of how convenient and awesome life could actually be. And so it's like this convergence of the beauty of the old and the convenience of the new. And that's what we love in a home. Um, so forgive me for over-spiritualizing your HGTV addiction, but I, I wonder if, if that satisfaction to, of the before and after, the, the renovation, this convergence of old and new, I, I wonder if that satisfaction is actually an echo of Eden. I wonder if there's something inside of us that loves the idea of restoration because there's something inside of us that is actually pining after it both in our own lives and on a global scale. Have you ever noticed how obsessed the Bible is with what I call uh, re-words? Redemption, restoration, restoration, um, reconciliation, reconciliation, redemption, renewal, regeneration, and of course, resurrection, resurrection. You know that is a uniquely biblical concept. Um, the reward of other religions and philosophies is always new construction. Uh, you leave this life behind, this world behind, and you escape to some uh, new, altogether different paradise in whatever other realm is out there. Even the Eastern religions with their concept of, yes, reincarnation, but the reincarnation is still a purging process journey moving up and out of this current existence into some form of spiritual nirvana. But not with the scriptures, not with the Bible. Here we see this glorious creation ruined and devastated by the fall of man being restored by God until all things are made new. All things, all the old stuff, made new. That is, the Bible tells the story of, as my sermon title says and our conference title, the Bible tells the story of a restoration project. And this morning I want us to see that story in our place. This evening I want us to see that, our story and our place in our story. I read three passages of Scripture for us, and each of them is going to serve as kind of the foundation of my three points. And here they are, and then we'll look at each three of these. Uh, culture designed, culture redeemed, and culture complete. Designed, redeemed, complete. 
Okay, let's look at the design of culture. This, this is the Genesis passage. Uh, look at verse 27, famous, famous words here. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's design begins with this special creature created in his image. That is a, a creature, a species that shares attributes with the creator. A creature that loves like the creator loves. A creature that creates like the creator creates. A creature that is moral, a moral agent like the creator is a moral being. A creature that is relational as the triune creator is relational and on and on we could go with these attributes that God shares with image bearers and then he tells the image bearers that he has basically um, impressed upon his his likeness he says now I want you to populate creation I want you to fill the earth and in this way creation will be flooded with God's image and God's glory. But it's much more than multiplication. It's much more than make babies. It is, it is something to do as we multiply. He has a mandate for us as we multiply. He says, fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion. Subdue, dominion, rule. Uh, the, these words we typically have negative connotations with as we should because... In a fallen and sinful world, dominion and rule always brings destruction. But in a perfect world, where image bearers subdue and rule according to the ways of the Creator, dominion would bring shalom, would bring this vision of perfect creation flourishing. The design was for God to hand to us this unbridled creation of His, just, just teeming with glorious potential, and give us this command. I want you to develop it. I want you to unpack its wonder and glory. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to play in it. I want you to be innovative. I want you to invent. I want you to bring order to creation. I want you to bring forth its majesty and beauty through art. In other words, I want you to fill creation with culture. Culture. Literally, culture cultivating the creation is the purpose, the original design of God for humanity, to fill the world with culture. If there was never a rebellion... If there was never a fall, what we call the fall, we would not have aimlessly walked around in the Garden of Eden. We would have developed the creation. Technology, art, business, music, entertainment, sports, financial institutions, government institutions. We would have built cities, and we would have lived in neighborhoods, and we would have played in parks. We would have unpacked God's good creation. But we would have done so perfectly, reflecting the glory of God, reigning in this world according to the reign of God. In other words, we would have created culture, but that culture would have perfectly honored God and blessed the creation.
It's hard for us to conceive of what that would be like uh, because the fall is all we have ever known. But it's like asking a fish what it's like to be out of water. But try, try to imagine all of the wonders of human culture, all the advancements, all the glory, all the things that we love about being a human and not a dog. All those things that we get to do, imagine that, but not corrupted by the stain of sin, not marred by the curse. All the good of culture without the bad, that was God's design. But of course, we mess it all up and ruin the design by our rebellion. And in response, God says this to Adam right after sin. God says this, because you've done this, cursed is the ground. Cursed is the creation because of you. And then he basically says this, culture is now going to hurt. In pain, you are going to labor all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it will bring forth for you. In other words, creation and culture will feel the painful effects of our sin. It's not just mankind, us individually, that becomes infected with sin, but the cultures of man as well. We still multiply and fill the earth. We're doing that part. But we don't bring God's reign. We bring the reign of evil and destruction. We create culture, but culture now reflects and perpetuates evil, not good. Destruction, not shalom. Everything we touch now, we ruin. And then from that point forward in the scriptures, we see this pervasive wickedness and destruction of cultures throughout the biblical narrative. Uh, it just goes right to Sodom and Gomorrah and on and on and continues to stay. Every culture throughout all of history bears the same shame. They dishonor God, they harm humanity, and they destroy creation. But the Creator will not hand over his creation to the fall. He wants it back. Not just men, not just souls. He wants it all. He wants it all back because it's his and he owns it. He is the rightful ruler and owner of all things. And he's saying, I'm going to have it back. And so culture mandate that began with, I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. The culture mandate project of God now becomes the cultural redemption project of God. Or, as our conference was entitled, a restoration project. And so the storyline of Scripture is the storyline of that redemption. And of course, the story culminates in the, in the Redeemer of redemption, Jesus Christ. We've seen culture design. Let's, let's fast forward to Jesus and see culture redeemed. And before I get to the 1 Corinthians 15 uh, passage here, let me set the stage for it. Um, we fast forward to Jesus, who is the hero of this redemption project. Does it trouble you when you read about the life of Jesus and you're just a good old American Christian? Does it trouble you that he's not as evangelistic as you wish he was? Like, aren't you like, I kind of need a disciple of Jesus on how to reach out to the lost. Because he's missing a lot of good opportunities. Like, you need, Jesus, you need to say, I want to invite you to invite me into your heart. 
you know, I, 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 want, I, need, I need to tell you, you know, the four spiritual laws or something like that and, and um, ask you to walk an aisle. He never does that. Well, he does that. He did come to save souls. He does come to forgive sins. But didn't it seem like his purposes were bigger than just saving some souls? He talked about this thing called the kingdom of God, a kingdom that he said was at hand with his coming. Now, the language of the kingdom, what does that evoke for you, kingdom? It, it evokes thoughts of rule and reign and dominion. And where do we hear that language? It harkens back to the original mandate to subdue, to rule, to have dominion. If we had not sinned, we would have filled the earth with the kingdom of God, the rule, the reign of God. However, because we rebelled, we filled the earth with the kingdom of sin and death. But Jesus views his coming as an invasion of the kingdom of God, a, a re-entry of the rightful ruler. And then when you look at his life, you see this play out. Everywhere this man went, the kingdom of darkness and sin and destruction and death was transformed into the kingdom of God. He's like this little oasis of redemption. Just everywhere he goes, everything he touches, everyone he speaks to, all things made new. But the kingdom of this world ended up killing the kingdom of God. When they crucified the king, it was the apparent victory of sin's reign over creation. When they killed him, it was the clash of the kingdom and reign of this world versus the kingdom and reign of God. And it would seem at the cross that the kingdom of the world put the kingdom of God to death. But what happened next, and this is why it's so important, we understand the cross so well in the church, in the evangelical church. We are so weak on the resurrection, and, it, and it's everything. You can't talk about these grand purposes without the resurrection. What happened next is that the king of the kingdom of God surprised the kingdoms of this world by rising from their death. And in this way, his death became not an end, but a beginning. They thought they were burying the kingdom of God, but they were actually planting the kingdom of God into the fallen creation. And what emerged from the grave was the sprout of a new creation, the first day of a new world. The resurrection of Jesus is so important because it transforms the nature of death. The remember, the ultimate price of the fall is death. If you sin, you're going to die. We sin, death everywhere. That is what the world now is, filled with death. We die, cultures die, nations die, everything dies. But what the resurrection does is it transforms the curse of death into a planting that yields a harvest of new creation. God tricked death by transforming the nature of death into its own death because now what goes to the grave rises to immortal new life. Now the winter gives way to spring. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 53. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O, de o death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He's saying you don't hurt anymore, death. We're not scared of you anymore. You don't rule anymore. Because now all you're doing is putting an end to the perishable that the imperishable might rise. You're putting an end to this corrupt world that an incorruptible creation might rise. Now, with that understanding of the resurrection, his closing application there in verse 58 starts to make more sense. Verse 50, 1 Corinthians 15 is the most uh, richest, the richest theology of resurrection we find in the Bible. And it ends with a very strange application of verse 58. He says, Therefore, in light of all that resurrection talk, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. On the surface, that's a surprising application. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Therefore, I would expect a promise there, not an application. This glorious doctrine of the resurrection, boasting, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Therefore, we have hope. Or, therefore, don't be scared of death. Or, therefore, wait until your future glory or, or, or whatever. A promise, but instead he gives an application. He says, get to work because of the resurrection. But it's not just any work. He says what? The work of the Lord. Now, what is the work of the Lord? The work He originally gave us to do. <laughs> Way back when, the work that He gave to humanity was what? Fill the earth and subdue it for His glory. And so now our calling as Christians is to resubdue what belongs to our Master Jesus, which is every square inch. To regain what has been stolen from our God. How does Jesus speak of conversion? How do Christians speak of conversion? Um, again, it's, it's with re-words. A rebirth. Or, as theologians call it, regeneration. Paul says it like this, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The Scriptures don't see the choice to follow Jesus as a change to our current life, but as a death to an old life and a resurrection of a new life so that the Christian life is actually a taste of the new creation. We are living, you want know you are Christian? You are a living embodiment of the redeemed world. You are the inbreaking of the end of the story. You are a little taste of the new creation that is to come. And our lives, therefore, in this world, as we go about as new creations, our lives, therefore, resubdue or renovate creation. You know, the thing about those renovation shows is that there's a lot left out. Um, you do realize homes are not renovated in 30 minutes, right? <laughs> and um, all we get to see is the before and after pictures, which are delicious. And, uh, and, Maybe a few shots in between of the cute couple swinging a hammer or something like that. But that's, that's about the extent that we're let in on. I don't think, and I understand, because I don't think those shows would be as entertaining and popular if we you know, followed the architects drawing up plans or um, engineers evaluating structural issues. 
or plumbers rerouting piping or uh, getting permits from local building officials. Does that sound like a fun show to you? I can't wait to see if the city government will give them their permit. <laughs> but guess what? You don't, you don't get that all satisfying after picture without the mundane unseen labors of all those people. And brothers and sisters, that is your, not, your life now. Mundane details of God's grand restoration project. Whatever your life, whatever your vocation, whatever your story, whatever your gifts and calling, whatever you are doing, you are a witness to the kingdom of God and you do it according to the ways of the kingdom of God. And in so doing, you, you, you resubdue this world for God. That's why your virtue matters. That's why what you do matters. We tend to think that obeying Jesus, following Jesus, is a means to something else. Like, I've got to be different. I've got to be holy so that my non-Christian friends will see my life and it'll give me an opportunity to share with them the gospel. Or I've got to be good so that I won't hurt other people. Or I won't destroy my life. Or just as a means to something else. But friends, obedience is glorious in itself. Because when you do business or art or education or babysitting or school or whatever you do, whenever you do it according to the ways of Jesus, according to the ethics of His kingdom, which are upside down from the ethics of this world, whenever you do your calling His way, you are saying, Jesus owns this sphere of creation. You are putting your stake in the ground and saying, this job belongs to Jesus. It doesn't matter what you're doing, but what you're doing matters. Now, let me play the cynic, okay? Because this is a critique we get. We, we, we who have this kind of robust uh, worldview of, of life and work and, and all these things. The critique we get is, is this. Um, this is nothing more than vaunted idealism. What we do really doesn't matter. Okay, um, it never brings about real and lasting change. It will be forgotten. It will be lost. We're not making any progress. I mean, come on. Nothing's really, we're not changing the world. We're not transforming the culture. Even if I did do my calling to the glory of God, and, and even if maybe we're onto something and God would bless a revival, and maybe we would see great change in the bluegrass, or you would see great change in your workplace or in your home or whatever, it doesn't matter. Somebody's going to come and bury our efforts under a pile of sin and selfish gain eventually. I was with my brother from Scotland, a pastor, a friend from Scotland this week, and um, you know, he told me grand stories about the Scottish Reformation led by John Knox and, and how, what it did to that country and that culture. And, and now uh, his grave, his tombstone is a parking place in Scotland, and the whole country's secular. So it's like, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm a faithful pastor and, and lead a, a congregation for the glory of Christ and the good of bluegrass, eventually some pastor is going to come and ruin it all. 
I mean, you know, 200 years, Taste Creek, I'm sure it'll be a mess. Kind of a mess now, but a worse mess. <laughs> Cynic. Cynic. It doesn't matter. There's no change, and even the change we do see never lasts. Lost and forgotten. But, again, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, in light of the promise of resurrection, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. But it feels like it is in vain, Paul. Well, it's not in vain. <laughs> it is in vain. No, it's not. What gives? Why can Paul say this is, none of this is in vain? Because he's saying in light of the resurrection, your labor is not in vain. Because when you rise, so shall the labors of your hands. Let's look at culture complete. This is the res Revelation passage. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven for God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the end of the restoration project, and the end... This is subtle but important. The end is a city, the city of God, invading creation. Now that's an interesting twist, because when we left off the story when heaven and earth were still one, we were in a garden, right? And then we got kicked out of the garden, but when heaven comes back and invades earth again, it's not, I saw a garden of Eden invading the earth, it's I saw a city. Where did that advancement come from? Well, that heavenly city, unseen to the eyes of the world and to us, is being constructed as we speak through the labors of God's people. And at the consummation, all that we have done will finally come to bear and have its full effect on creation. This city will be filled with the works and labors of the hands of God's people. Let me try to explain it like this. Can we all agree that Jesus did some pretty amazing things while he was here? Um, thank you, yes. <laughs> It is safe to say that that man had an impact. Well, do you know what everyone was saying about Jesus and thought about Jesus and all of his great life and all the impact he made and all his teachings and miracles and all his wonderful stuff? Do you know what they were saying about him on, on Black Saturday? Not Black Friday, the shopping day. Black Saturday when he's in the tomb. You know what they are saying about him on that dark day? Meaningless. It's over. Just another revolutionary. This one was pretty impressive, but another one. Soon to be buried beneath the rubble of history. Well, do you know why he is not forgotten? Do you know why the significance and value and power of the life and ministry of Jesus carries on even here this evening? You know why we're still having a conference on Jesus and talking about Jesus changing the world? Because he rose from the dead. You see, not only was Jesus raised from the dead, so were the faithful labors of his hands. So were the promises that he made. So was the cross that he said would atone for sin. So was everything he said and everything he did. When he rose, it was given vindication and fullness and effect. 
And the point of 1 Corinthians 15 is the same is going to be true for you, Christian. Listen, I hope you accomplish great things for the Lord. I hope you make an impact that will be felt for a long, long time. I hope history talks about you for centuries. But I want to tell you something. If the Lord does not return for a while, eventually your work will be forgotten and your labors will be buried. But not forever. In the same way that the faithful labors of Jesus, which seemed to be utter meaningless at His death, were shown instead to be powerful and glorious at His resurrection, so will it be for you. Everything you do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will find its ultimate fulfillment and significance at the resurrection of all things. The point of our future resurrection is that nothing will be forgotten. Nothing will be lost. Everything you do will be raised. The story will be told. It will find its completion, its value, its significance. You will see when, when this city invades the earth and, and, and when all things are made due, you're going to look around and you're going to see that the smallest labors of your hands in the name of Jesus contributed to the greatest of redemptions. Your life is building the kingdom of God Sometimes those results break through into this world. Sometimes they don't. But the hope of the labors of your life is that the bricks and mortar of the resurrected Kentucky will be built upon the service of your life. When we say that we exist for the good of the bluegrass, we are saying that when this world finally experiences what it longs for, this glorious resurrection, that day that it says, the Bible says that the creation is literally groaning for that when that happens, the indelible mark of TCPC and your lives will be all over the resurrected Kentucky. Now, get to work, is what Paul say. How inspiring is that? Hmm? How empowering, how significant, how transformative it is to the mundane to realize that every labor in the name of Jesus will not be forgotten, but will be honored and glorified and celebrated in the resurrected world. So what do you have going on tomorrow? Big day. Another boring old Monday or an opportunity to add to the project to redeem and reclaim your Monday, your mundane Monday for the glory of the King. Whatever you do tomorrow, whether it is the choice to be honest and virtuous at work, or the courage to say no to pornography or whatever substance addiction you have going on, whether it's just another day of sobriety, or the opportunity to love someone that God's providence places in your path, or the opportunity to change a diaper or discipline a child or nurture a hurting child, or the opportunity to educate our next generation in a loving and gracious and humble according to the ways of the kingdom way, whatever you have to do on February 20th, 2017 will echo through eternity. I believe that. Your mundane day tomorrow will be celebrated, literally celebrated in the resurrection. So let's get to work. Your labor is not in vain. Let me pray. 
Lord, help us, fill us, uh, empower us, feed us with your sacrament to go forth and serve you. And uh, I pray that um, we would know that nothing is insignificant, that every square inch belongs to you, and, and that we would live our lives for your glory, knowing that our labor is not in vain. Lord, we need strength for that fight. So we come now to your table and ask that you would feed us. Only because you are risen do we still take this mundane meal every single week because it's significant and it matters and has power because you are risen for the dead. Lord, show us that hope. Overwhelm us with that hope. We pray in your name. Amen.